Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. Since this episode is about a novel and those typically don't have a soundtrack, that opener was by Ghostmane and its eponymous title was inspired by the topic of this week's episode, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? by legendary sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. Hi there, I'm Reese Hendrick, host of Science Factual, the show that dives into the facts behind your favorite science fiction. I'm starting things off with a spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Because I'll be getting into the themes and major plot points of the novel, so if you haven't tackled this sci-fi staple, then do yourself a favor. Pause this episode, head on down to your local bookstore, and pick up a copy of the novel that inspired the Blade Runner franchise. For this episode, not only are we covering one of my favorite novels, but I got to sit down with one of my favorite comedians and overall great dude, Jeremiah Coughlin. We met up on down in Salem at the Infinity Room to discuss the novel, comedy, and specialized career paths. You'll also get to hear a hilarious set from Jeremiah at the end of the episode, so make sure to stick around for that and an announcement about the eyeball New Year's Eve party being thrown by Shady Pines Radio. It's gonna be rad. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, retroactively retitled Blade Runner Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in some later printings, is a dystopian science fiction novel by American writer Philip K. Dick, first published in 1968. The novel is set in a post-apocalyptic San Francisco where Earth's life has been greatly damaged by a nuclear global war, leaving most animal species endangered or otherwise extinct. The main plot follows Rick Deckard, a bounty hunter who is tasked with retiring, i.e. killing, six escaped Nexus 6 model androids, while a secondary plot follows John Isidore, a man of subpar IQ who aids the fugitive androids. The book served as the primary basis for the 1982 film Blade Runner, even though some aspects of the novel were changed and many elements and themes from it were used in the film's 2017 sequel, Blade Runner 2049. In 1992, 2021 and later editions, following a devastating global war called World War Terminus, the Earth's radioactively polluted atmosphere leads the United Nations to encourage mass emigrations to off-world colonies to preserve humanity's genetic integrity. Moving away from Earth comes with the incentive of free, personal androids, robot servants identical to humans. The Rosen Association manufactures the androids on a colony on Mars, but some androids violently rebel and escape to Earth, where they hope to remain undetected. As a result, American and Soviet police departments remain vigilant and keep android bounty hunting officers on duty. 
on Earth, owning real live animals has become a fashionable status symbol, both because mass extinctions have made authentic animals rare and because of the accompanying cultural push for greater empathy. However, poor people can only afford realistic-looking robot imitations of live animals. Rick Deckard, the novel's protagonist, for example, owns an electric blackface sheep. The trend of increased empathy has coincidentally motivated a new technology-based religion called Mercerism, which uses empathy boxes to link users simultaneously to a virtual reality of collective suffering centered on a martyr-like character, Wilbur Mercer, who eternally climbs up a hill while being hit with crashing stones. Acquiring high-status animal pets and linking into empathy boxes appears to be the only two ways characters in the story strive for existential fulfillment. Alright, enough toying with the plot, let's just get right on into it, and I will be doing an in-depth plot summary because it is important to recognize the differences between the novel plot and the movie Blade Runner, uh, but I will be getting into some more specific differences between the two properties uh, after the plot and some facts about author Philip K. Dick. Rick Deckard, a bounty hunter for the San Francisco Police Department, is assigned to retire six androids of the new and highly intelligent Nexus 6 model which have recently escaped from Mars and traveled to Earth. These androids are made of organic matter so similar to a human's that only a posthumous bone marrow analysis can independently prove the difference, making them almost impossible to distinguish from real people. Deckard hopes this mission will earn him enough bounty money to buy a live animal to replace his lone electric sheep to comfort his depressed wife, Iran. Deckard visits the Rosen Association's headquarters in Seattle to confirm the accuracy of the latest empathy test meant to identify incognito androids. Deckard suspects the test may not be capable of distinguishing the latest Nexus 6 models from genuine human beings, and it appears to give a false positive on his host in Seattle, Rachel Rosen, meaning the police have potentially been executing human beings. The Rosen Association attempts to blackmail Deckard to get him to drop the case, but Deckard retests Rachel and determines that Rachel is, indeed, an android, which she ultimately admits. Deckard soon meets a Soviet police contact who turns out to be one of the Nexus 6 renegades in disguise. Deckard kills the android, then flies off to kill his next target, an android living in disguise as an opera singer. Meeting her backstage, Deckard attempts to administer the empathy test, but she calls the police. Failing to recognize Deckard as a bounty hunter, the cops arrest and detain him at a police station he's never heard of, filled with officers whom he's surprised to have never met. An officer named Garland accuses Deckard himself of being an android with implanted memories. After a series of mysterious revelations at the station, Deckard ponders the ethical and philosophical questions his line of work raises regarding android intelligence, empathy, and what it means to be human. Garland, pointing a gun at Deckard, then reveals that the entire station is a sham, claiming that both he and Phil Resch, the station's resident bounty hunter, are androids. Resch shoots Garland in the head, escaping with Deckard back to the opera singer, whom Resch brutally kills in cold blood when she alludes that he himself may be an android. Desperate to know the truth, Resch asks Deckard to administer the empathy test on him, which confirms that he is actually human, if a particularly ruthless one. Deckard then tests himself, confirming that he is human, but has a sense of empathy for certain androids. After this, Deckard is now able to buy his wife Iran an authentic Nubian goat with his commission. Later, his supervisor insists that he visit an abandoned apartment building where the three remaining android fugitives are assumed to be hiding. 
experiencing a vision of the prophet-like Mercer confusingly telling him to proceed despite the immorality of the mission, Deckard calls on Rachel Rosen again since her knowledge of android physiology may aid in his investigation. Rachel declines to help but reluctantly agrees to meet Deckard at a hotel in exchange for him abandoning the case. At the hotel, she reveals that one of the fugitive androids is the same exact model as herself, meaning that he will have to shoot down an android that looks exactly like her. Despite having initial doubts by Rachel, Rachel and Deckard end up having sex, after which they confess their love for one another. Rachel reveals that she has slept with many bounty hunters, having been programmed to do so in order to dissuade them from their missions. Deckard threatens to kill her, but holds back at the last moment before he leaves for the abandoned apartment building. Meanwhile, the three remaining Nexus 6 android fugitives plan how they can outwit Deckard. The building's only other inhabitant, John R. Isidore, a radioactively damaged and intellectually below-average human, attempts to befriend them, but is shocked when they callously torture and mutilate a rare spider he discovers. They all watch a television program which presents definitive evidence that the entire theology of Mercerism is a hoax. Deckard enters the building, experiencing strange supernatural premonitions of Mercer notifying him of an ambush. When the androids attack first, Deckard is legally justified as he shoots down all three without testing them beforehand. Isidore is devastated and Deckard is soon rewarded for a record number of Nexus 6 kills in a single day. When Deckard returns home, he finds Iran grieving because while he was away, Rachel Rosen stopped by and killed their goat. That's not very nice. Deckard then travels to an uninhabited, obliterated region of Oregon to reflect. He climbs a hill and is hit by falling rocks, during which he realizes this is an experience eerily similar to Mercer's martyrdom. He stumbles abruptly upon what he thinks is a real toad, an animal since thought to have been extinct, but when he returns home with it, he is crestfallen when Iran discovers it is merely a robot. As he goes to sleep, she prepares to care for the electric toad anyway. By the way, the background for that synopsis was another track inspired by the novel by an artist called Kid, that's with two Ds, and it's also called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Alrighty, this week's facts are going to largely be about Philip K. Dick, because although this week's schedule does involve a lot of dick between this episode and the next chapter of the book report covering A Scanner Darkly this week, I want to make sure that we cover the basics about the prolific and important sci-fi author, as well as some main differences between this novel and its film adaptation, Blade Runner, which I covered in an early episode, number six, I believe, with comedian Ben Levy. Check that one out for more info on the film itself. Philip Kindred Dick, born December 16, 1928, was an American science fiction writer. He wrote 44 novels and about 121 short stories, most of which appeared in science fiction magazines during his lifetime. His fiction explored varied philosophical and social questions such as the nature of reality, perception, human nature and identity, and commonly featured characters struggling against elements such as alternate realities, illusory environments, monopolistic corporations, drug abuse, authoritarian governments, and altered states of consciousness. Born in Chicago, Dick moved to the San Francisco Bay Area with his family at a young age. He began publishing science fiction stories in 1952 at age 23. He found little commercial success until his alternative history novel The Man in the High Castle from 1962 earned him acclaim, including a Hugo Award for Best Novel when he was 33. 
He followed with science fiction novels such as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in 1968 and Ubik in 1969. His 1974 novel, Flow My Tears the Policeman Said, won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Following years of drug abuse and a series of mystical experiences in 1974, Dick's work engaged more explicitly with issues of theology, metaphysics, and the nature of reality, as in novels A Scanner Darkly from 1977, which we're covering in the next chapter of the book report, Vallis from 1981, and The Transmigration of Timothy Archer in 1982. A collection of his speculative non-fiction writing on these themes was published posthumously as The Exegesis of Philip K. Dick in 2011. He died in 1982 in Santa Ana, California at the age of 53 due to complications from a stroke. Following his death, he became widely regarded as a master of imaginative paranoid fiction in the vein of Franz Kafka and Thomas Pynchon. Dick's posthumous influence has been widespread, extending beyond literary circles into Hollywood filmmaking. Popular films based on his work include Blade Runner from 1982, Total Recall, adopted twice in 1990 and again in 2012, Minority Report in 2002, A Scanner Darkly in 2006, The Adjustment Bureau in 2011, and Radio Free Albemuth in 2010. Beginning in 2015, Amazon Prime Video produced the multi-season television adaptation The Man in the High Castle, based on Dick's 1962 novel, and in 2017, Channel 4 began producing the ongoing anthology series Electric Dreams, based on various Dick stories. In 2005, Time Magazine named Ubik from 1969 one of the 100 greatest English-language novels published since 1923, and in 2007, Dick became the first science fiction writer included in the Library of America series. Getting back into Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the most prominent change between the book and the movie is possibly the lack of the term Blade Runner. The film's title was really based on the title of a 1979 novella by William S. Burroughs. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Deckard, the protagonist, who is portrayed by Harrison Ford in the film, is only described as a bounty hunter. Speaking of major changes, here are some of the most notable differences between the novel and the 1982 film. First off, the film is set in an overcrowded futuristic Los Angeles, but the book takes place in an almost deserted San Francisco. The events of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep occur after World War Terminus, a fatal war which has devastated the planet with its radioactive effect, explaining San Francisco's ruination. The majority of the Earth's animals went extinct, and a significant number of the human populace is experiencing painful bodily and psychological ailments, not just a shit ton of future smog. The protagonist of the book and the film may share the same name and the main character's status, and yet they are admittedly very different people. In the film, Deckard is seemingly a sworn bachelor, broody and slick, perhaps an allusion to noir male protagonists. In the novel, however, he is unhappily married to a woman he can never seem to satisfy. There are also deviations from the source material when it comes to his professional life. In the film, he's the best in the business, sought after to complete missions others cannot. In the book, he's depicted as second-rate, occasionally the butt of the joke amongst his colleagues. Now, due to the aforementioned radioactive effects of the war, most animal species have in fact gone extinct in the book. That's the reason why possessing an actual live pet is a major status symbol in the book, and most people cannot afford them. Many people choose to have android animals, but they are considered a poor substitute. An important subplot in the book is Deckard's obsession with obtaining a live pet, which is shared by his wife, uh, which acts as one of his primary motivators for taking up the task of locating the androids. He keeps the titular electric sheep on his roof after the real ones he used to have all died. In the book, the engineered humanoids are called androids, created by the Rosen Association. 
Eight androids arrived on Earth with a team comprised of Max Polakov, Luba Luft, Garland, Pris Stratton, Roy and Ermgard Batty, and two more that appear only before Deckard was handed the task. There's no obvious motive behind the androids' decision to murder their owners on Mars and escape to Earth, and there is no obvious motive behind the androids' decision to murder their owners on Mars and escape to Earth. In the film, replicants are created by the Tyrell Corporation. Only five get to Earth, and one is killed before Deckard even starts his mission. The replicants' purpose for coming to Earth was to prolong their lives since the programmed fail-safe mechanism destroys them after only four years. The topic of Android's ability to feel human emotions showed quite opposing perspectives between Philip K. Dick and the film's creative team, Ridley Scott especially. In the book, androids are essentially irredeemable creatures. They've been programmed to never feel actual human emotions, and they are easier to distinguish from actual humans. They do not form deep relationships and lack empathy. In the film, the opposite occurs as the lines between human and replicants become increasingly blurred. Replicants are shown to possess emotions, understanding, and a craving to be accepted and to really live. Now, Dick's novel admittedly focuses on different things than the movie. The author chose to depict more of Deckard's personal life, his marital issues, and his general sense of failure as a bounty hunter and as a husband. He also heavily commented on the social aspects of a post-apocalyptic world. He underlined the issues of urban decay, commercialism, and how humans can on occasion act as machines. He also incorporated his own brand of humor and satire, and in the film, the tone is darker and neo-noir. There is no humor, and Deckard is depicted as a loner, but an excellent Blade Runner. There are quite a few subplots that were not included in the film. The film does not incorporate mood organs, which are machines that modify people's moods, and it does away with a whole subplot with a religion called Mercerism. In the book, followers around the universe also utilize a particular gadget called the Empathy Box to establish a shared consciousness and merge with a supposed saint called Wilbur Mercer. Through undergoing his trials and tribulations, supporters gain the ability to communicate their emotions and understand each other. What's more is that the opposing interpretations of Rachel's character have to do with the different views concerning androids replicants and humanity between the film and the book. In both, Deckard administers the Voigt-Kampf test to determine whether she is a real human, but then the paths of the two versions drastically diverge. In the novel, she is revealed to be an android only after a few questions, and her employer devises an irrational explanation about how she grew up isolated in a spaceship and therefore acts like an android, but Deckard doesn't believe him. In the film, it takes a hundred questions, and Deckard still shows signs of reservation. In the former, she's spiteful and cold, whereas in the latter, she feels love, sadness, and a wide range of emotions. While it has to be noted that the two versions have key differences in their storylines and even in basic ideas, and hence had to have different endings, the film's ending is more touching and hopeful and resonates more with our needs as an audience. In the book, Deckard terminates all the replicants he had to, goes through some surreal journey, returns home to his wife, and then just falls asleep, promptly forgetting his hard-earned empathy for androids. In the film, Roy's speech after the showdown with Deckard was a moving touch that really fleshed out the replicant's human side. It prompted Deckard to take Rachel and just get away, finally finding love and human connection with a replicant. Aside from the original novel and subsequent films, there were three follow-up novels in the series that continue the story of human-replicant relations. We have Blade Runner 2, The Edge of Human from 1995, Blade Runner 3, Replicant Knight from 1996, and Blade Runner 4, Eye and Talon from 2000, none of which were obviously written by Dick, being that he died in 1982.
Coming up next, we have an awesome interview with the very funny Jeremiah Coughlin. We met up outside of Infinity Room in Salem, Oregon to talk comedy and sci-fi. Check it out. So what would you say pays more, comedy or, or, or cans? Started in the cans. cans. Definitely, yeah. Yes, okay. My first open mic I ever did was in uh, southeast at this place called Lad's Edition. Oh, sure. It wasn't even like a comedy open mic. It was just an open mic. And I like turned in the can so that I could eat poutine before. It's a very Canadian activity. This is an origin story <laughs> of me being poor. <laughs> Ten years later, still poor. As we get my Lexus, I guess it sounds... Are we recording? Yeah. Can you hear well, me we... breathing? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, the voice other than my own that you hear, that's Jeremiah Coughlin. I'm a little winded. No, I'm just I'll, I'll be fine. That's true. You did move a lot of cans. That was that's, a lot of cans. That's a lot of cans. That's. But that gives me a good excuse to clean this car out. So <laughs> that's I'm true. glad we're here. Yeah. Well, look, a career path is a career path at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, Jeremiah, we're here to get in some dick. Yeah. Lots of it. Lots of it. But before we do that, let me ask you this. What's your Instagram? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just at Jeremiah Coughlin. So my long, ridiculous name, which is, you want me to spell it? That would be, yeah, it might be helpful. J-E-R-E-M-I-A-H-C-O-U-G-H-L-A-N. I am so proud of you right now. I've been doing that a long time. <laughs> had some experience with that for sure. I can do all my siblings. Oh? It was like the first things you learn how to spell, you know, where you're like M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T. Margaret? There you go. Oh, yeah. I, I can spell too, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Man, you know, there's a lot of skills you learn when doing stand-up comedy. Uh, speaking of which, Jeremiah, how did you get your startup in stand-up? Well, it's something I always wanted to do. I was uh, working at a job where the supervisor I had had done stand-up a bunch. Okay. Like in the, like, I guess the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Is it Bobcat Goldwave? Yes. <laughs> it's actually a guy named Ken Samuelson, and he was kind of like those like Portland legend folks like Dwight Slade, Susan Rice, Art Krug. He was kind of in that crew of folks. Nice. Well, the last time I cried laughing was from Susan Rice over at the Pope House. Mm -hmm. She's fucking hilarious. She is. Yeah, and she's been doing it a long time. Yes. A long time. She's been around for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So he was like in that kind of group. And we used to just sort of nerd out about comedy. And he was kind of always like saying like, you should try it. Like you'll regret it if you don't try it kind of thing. Mm. There was a, there was a guy that I knew. This is the fun part. It was like Labor Day weekend. This guy I knew his name was Ben. Now he goes by Rusty. And uh, we just had some mutual friends. Like I used to buy weed from him. He started going to open mics, and he's not funny. <laughs> like, Stone Cold, not funny. And so it was sort of like a perfect storm of things where this unfunny guy going to open mics, my boss who was funny being like, dude, you're pretty funny. You should try this. It all kind of came together, and I was like, you know what? I was 30. I was 30 before I started doing stand-up, mm. which is pretty old. And I used to, like, look at all these people that were doing stand-up and was like, the first open mic they ever went to, they were like 17 or whatever, you know? And I was just like, yeah, I right. think I just, uh, I think I just missed my chance is what I used to tell myself. And mm -hmm. then like that guy, Ken was like, dude, no one wants to listen to a kid talk. 
Like, people want to listen to grown-ups talk. It was like, all right, that made sense to me. That's a good point. I, I, yeah. I, I didn't start till I was 30, 30, 31. I, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, you know, I, I had similar thoughts where it's like, oh, you know, like, what do I have to bring to the table? Yes, a 17-year-old can pander to other 17-year-olds and potentially up to, like, the mid-20s if you're looking to hold on to something. But experience talks. Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely feel the getting into the game a little bit later, you know, it, it's okay. I, I've, I've talked to multiple comics who have been like, yeah, I didn't get my start until my 30s. And, you know, I, I think there's merit in that. For yeah, sure. It was actually, uh, what's your name? Kathy Griffin? Sure. Kathy Griffin. Griffith, yeah. Griffith. I knew I was going to screw it up. Whichever <laughs> one I chose, I knew I was going to be wrong. Kathy Griffin is Peter Griffin's weird cousin. Yes. <laughs> Kathy Griffith didn't start doing stand-up until she was in her 30s. Hey. And she was actually one of those people that I was like, well, worked for them. I'll yeah. try it. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of my favorite Seinfeld episodes. There you go. He started calling me schmutzy <laughs> and pawing at me. <laughs> pawing at me is probably one of the best sentences I've ever heard. So, Jeremiah, let me ask you this, because, you know, I, I've, I've never been on tour as a comedian. I've done a lot of, you know, showcases and things like that, but... What's it like being a touring comedian? Because you, you have a contract with Helium. Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of. I mean, that was like mostly to get my album recorded. No small potatoes. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I guess it is one of those things where it's pretty cool, but you don't really think about it when it's happening. Mm. You're just doing, like, it's sort of like the the next natural progression of things that you're doing. Sure. Right, where it's like, you just keep bombing forever, and then... It stops hurting. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. That was actually, uh, I, I talk about this a lot too, which was, you remember Maxim Magazine? Oh, sure. Of course. So there used to be an article in Maxim Magazine towards the front every month or whenever they came out that was like a how-to. And one of them was how to be a stand-up comedian. And it was actually <laughs> written by Greg Proops. Oh, God. And it was just a page of like... Love, Greg. You go to an open mic, and then it was just like, you bomb and you bomb and you bomb, and it just said that for a whole page. <laughs> and then it was like, eventually, you don't stop bombing, but it stops hurting. <laughs> and now you're a stand-up comedian. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a very accurate depiction of, of the life cycle of a stand-up yeah. open mic comedian. <laughs> yeah. I was like, all right. I get it. But as far as just, like, being out there, I love it. I mean, it's... It's really all I wanted to do. I think people get into comedy for their own reasons, and people mm. do comedy for their own reasons, and kind of, like, it's one of those things that there's no roadmap, there's no path, there's no, there's not even really, like, success, right? Because there's always, like, the next thing. For me, it's just, like, all I really wanted to do was, like, see everywhere. Like, I like traveling. I like meeting new people. I like going to places, like, basically as a tourist. I basically consider myself a professional tourist. I go to these cities. I do touristy stuff. I go at night and talk about those things and try to make people laugh and then, you know, bring kind of my own sensibilities of who I am as a, I guess, middle-aged person from the Northwest who's always lived here. You go around the Pacific Northwest. Like you, I mean, you've, you've done shows in Washington State. You've done shows in Idaho. I mean, like, you know, so yeah. you, you, you've been around for sure. And what I'm really most interested in is what's up with the Portland Pickles? Oh, yeah. Well, they're my favorite baseball team. And I like baseball. So. Fuck yeah. I, you know? I, I live out in Hillsboro. So I, I, the Hillsboro Hops 
That's no fun. Oh, okay. Well, the Portland Pickles is my summer baseball job, my summer job, the best job in the world. I just, uh, you know, we started a podcast about the Pickles five years ago, me and Jake Silverman. Shout out Jake Silverman. Yeah. He got reached out to by a local radio station that was interested in doing it. And we kind of had like no connection to the team. We had no inside information. We had nothing. We had like the name of like the food and beverage manager. <laughs> and we just like kept harassing them. Yeah, the important stuff. <laughs> yeah. And making episodes and showing up at the ballpark. And eventually, you know, we kind of became the official podcast of the team. And then they invited us to be the on-field hosts for a summer. So in 2019, we did that, and it was rad. And then COVID happened, but we've been back. So he he has stepped away, but for the last two seasons, I was just doing it by myself. They just give me a microphone, and I just wander around and talk shit and make fun of people and create chaos. And I raced the Unipiper this summer. A lot of different things have happened. And one, folks. I, I don't well, know. I, I smoked his Yeah, ass. absolutely smoked him. I well, mean, I, I, I guess is a unicycle, really. But. Well, you know, he's he's got the power of the force behind him. Yeah. Well, I was like, you yeah. know, you don't have to, like, do the whole bagpipe thing. And yeah. he's like, then I'm not the unicycle. Right. You got to do it's the bagpipe thing. just a guy on the unicycle. And I was like, all right, man, well. Bagpipes on fire has got to be the coolest slash most Portland thing. Yeah. On, on a unicycle. Check out the unipiper on social media for sure it's a good dude solid dude so jeremiah what was your first exposure to science fiction then yeah i was thinking about that i don't know if i have a clear-cut answer to that i i think my first exposure to science fiction was when cops was over star trek used to come on and i would turn that off (laughs) just because i didn't like (laughs) we're talking tng right yeah okay yeah yeah yeah, Yeah. for sure i had to think about what that even means i have no (laughs) I have no connection. Like, I've tried to watch it, and maybe as an adult, maybe I would like it. Maybe it's just one of those, like, invisible barriers I have as a human where I'm like, this isn't something I'm into, so I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to give it a chance. I think I watched one of the new movies. Okay. Where they tried to make it cool. Yeah, the J.J. Abrams vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I think he did a good job with them. Yeah. A lot of lens flares, but, you know. Where you're like. You look past those in the dialogue. Like, would you date a green lady? Yes. Sure. Yeah. I yeah do oh, that. oh, yeah. Hands down. Yeah. yeah. I, I think a lot of Star Trek has to do with would you date an alien? That's basically <laughs> the premise. Yeah. Or at least Riker's story arc. Okay. That's one of those TNG characters that you so callously turned off without any sort of consideration. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just remember like the theme music, like everything mm. about it. I was just like, not your deal. I don't, I don't like this. That's okay. Um, but you know, like I was into Star Wars when I was a kid. Okay. When we were, when but I, really four through six, because, because like, because all right, when, yeah, when yeah. I was eleven, uh, or I'm sorry, when I was nine, Phantom Menace came out. Sure. So, so that that was my shit. Like that and Harry Potter were the two things that I cared the most about in this world because reality sucked at the time. Yeah, but I was it, definitely the the original, the original. You know, like you said, trilogy. Yeah, six. yeah. Sure. And then, so I was, oh, I'm obviously older than you, so when they did come out with those first three episodes, they reissued all of those. Yeah, for, the, the original trilogy, yeah, yeah, on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, all the... They all put them in theaters, too, so we went to oh, nice, the yeah, theaters. Oh, nice, yeah, yeah, totally. Because I was too young 
to see them in theaters when they first came out. Sure. So I'd seen them, but not in theaters. So when they re-released them on theaters, that was pretty cool. Kind of lost the thread of it at this point, you know, like... I there's a that, lot going on. There, there's been a lot of extrapolation off of, like, even if you were to consider, like, the nine movies as main canon, yeah. there are offshoots where it's like, okay, I don't necessarily even have the time to consider all of it. Yeah. I liked The Mandalorian. I thought the Boba Fett show was boring as hell. I okay. fell asleep several times during that. I think okay. I watched, like, two episodes of it. I heard that the new thing is really good. I just haven't watched it. Andor, yeah. Yeah, I just haven't had time to watch it. I think the last thing I saw in the theater was Rogue One. Rogue One is the shit. I love how it ties in pre-New Hope, mm -hmm. where, like, the end scene, literally, you could stop Rogue One and start New Hope. Yeah. And it is a continuation of the story. So definitely love what they did with that. But I feel you. There, there is a lot of Star Wars, and now that Disney really has like taken it by the fucking coffee and balls, yeah, you know, they're gonna milk it for whatever they can get out of it. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, that was probably like my first, like real, like science fictiony thing. Um, remember when I was a little kid, we used to go to this daycare, and there was like me and another kid. We were the same age, and the the lady who was in charge of the daycare went to the store and got us action figures, mm. and. It's this, a cool lady. Yeah. This kid got to pick first. He got Luke Skywalker. Lame. I got uh, Admiral Akbar. Very cool. Yeah. But at the time, when you're seven or eight. Not that cool. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck even is this fish face guy? <laughs> I get you get, hey. you get the main character, and I get this fish face guy? Now with context and how cool that is. I, know. As a, I wish as I still a, had it. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I was, you know, I mean, before it became too cool to like it, like, uh, I always did, like, Boba Fett, and I have, mm. I have a bunch of Boba Fett stuff from before. Boba Fett's the shit. It was a cool idea, and then they were like, well, now we have to build a story, and it was like, the the what made it cool was that it was mysterious, and, yes. like, this guy didn't talk, and blah, blah, blah. So the extrapolation on his backstory is what kind of ruined it for you with exactly. Book of Boba Fett. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I can, I can feel that, for yeah. sure. That took a lot of the cool stuff out of it for me, where it was like, the mystery behind it is like, now he, now he's a main character, and that that's not what it's about. His ancillary parts is what makes him such a engaging character in the original trilogy, for sure. And, you know, like, and to say like, okay, he survived the Sarlacc pit, nobody survives the Sarlacc pit. I love Book of Boba Fett because I do like the extrapolation on what could be. But at the end of the day, it is a little invisible. If, if you look at the history of the monster that is the Sarlacc. But that is not <laughs> what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about... It's the unbelievability for you. It, it, a little You're bit, like, yeah. Well, that, that one component, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> look, if we're going to keep it real... <clears throat> <laughs> You're going well, actually, on the Sarlacc pit. All right. I yeah. like that. <laughs> well, actually, is one of the finest staples that a nerd can have in their yeah. quiver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it, know is guys, a nerd, it is a nerd quiver. I know guys that don't even need glasses. They just have them so they can right. take them off and say... <laughs> well, actually. Well, actually. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, we're here to talk about Philip K. Dick and do androids dream of electric sheep. Yeah. Which, when I asked you to be on Science Factual, when you said do androids dream of electric sheep, my nerd radar pinged so hard. Yeah. Because... PKD, like, I love getting dicked. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, sometimes I get dicked twice a month just to stay limber. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I love Philip K. Dick as an author, but do androids dream of electric sheep? Not only was the first property that I read from him, but I I would say, aside from A Scanner Darkly, which I'll be covering with Noah Linsk at the end of this month, uh, you know, if you were to look at the top 10 sci-fi novels of all time, does do androids dream of electric sheep make that list maybe not for everybody but at the end of the day like it is such an important sci-fi piece because of the different staples that it introduces of the genre whether it's hypersentience whether it's androids whether it is our development of technology to be able to you know even further pinpoint psychology yeah, like there is so much going on that it, it, I would say that it is one of the most important sci-fi pieces ever written, and that subsequently Philip K. Dick is one of the most important sci-fi authors of all time. I can go with that. Yeah, right on. I like all of that. Yeah, and it's been a long time, and I, you know, I'll be fully honest. I didn't reread it. I had somebody read it to me. I did the the audio book because. Hey. I had to drive to California and back on Saturday to do a gig at a casino. There are worse ways to spend your time than listening to an audiobook of PKD, for sure. Yeah, it was good. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Um, the, like, narrator did different voices for, like, Isidore. And uh, I don't know. It was, it's been a long time since I've read it. And, I mean, still really good. I've seen Blade Runner somewhat recently. When we when the new one came out, we watched it again. You double double down on the yeah. Blade Runner than Blade and then Runner I just I just watched Blade Runner today. Okay, uh, after reading the book or hearing the book read to me, and uh, God, that fucking book is so much better than that movie. Thank you. That, yes, that the movie book, is not very good. It does. First off, it is a derivative right. at best. Yeah. So yes, there are characters that bleed over sure. from one to the other. But Deckard's backstory and just interactivity, like with the situation at hand, is so much more involved, and you see that typically more with a novel than yeah. a film adaptation. I, sure. I like, I mean, because you have so much more time, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it is typical, but it's it's like this one's especially kind of egregious for me, based on the themes that are in the book, that just sort of don't make the cut when it comes to this movie yes so yeah i mean there's just so much like more context to his situation and i mean the whole thing about the you know the animals and what life is like currently you know supposedly i mean i know it's they've changed the date so like the original book is supposed to be in 1992, right? And then it became 2021, but it was right. like January 3rd. I was like, oh, it could have been January 6th. That would have been, <laughs> that would have been so funny. Yes, um, <laughs> that would have like brought about the Tyrell Corporation, right? <laughs> the movie is 2019. Yeah, so it kind of like moves all over the place. So where it's like kind of interesting to be in a situation where all of those futuristic dates have now passed us, and none of these things, you know, like World War Terminus, has not happened yet. Yeah, um, yet yeah. being the key operative there, yeah, for sure. But just the, you know, like the fact that it's in San Francisco mm. and not L.A., I mean, there's just so many things that I like more about the book. My favorite part of the book is when he goes to kill the opera lady, he gets picked up by a different police department and taken there. 
Dude. And they're like, are you an android? Am I an android? Which, I know. Who's an android? <laughs> like, that whole situation is, like, what's really great about that story of, like, that kind of, like, paranoid fiction where it's like, well, I don't know. Do you know? Well, here, let's all take this test and we'll be able to tell, like... I really enjoyed that whole part of the book. Um, yeah, and then but, that's his interaction with a uh, homeboy that's like, yeah, I mean, you should kill him, but go ahead and fuck him first. Which is like <laughs> just this weird, like, offshoot of the whole thing where yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, I never, I guess I never thought about that. I guess that's going to happen now. It's like definitely Chekhov's gun, right? Where you're right. like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess if you're going to mention fucking the robots. There's a little foreshadowing going Homeboy's on. Homeboy's gonna fuck the robots. He's gonna fuck right? some robots. Yeah, absolutely. The whole head fuck of the pseudo police department that's run by androids in order to subvert the hunt for other androids. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it is such a missed opportunity in the movie. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, and if you were to redo Blade Runner, let's let's say Blade Runner 2049 never existed. Sure. If you were to remake Blade Runner. With the graphic capabilities that we have today mm -hmm. and the story writing capabilities that we have today, because it, let's let's be honest, if if you look at an action film from the '80s versus an action film from the 2010s, even yeah, you you would see character development and arcs that tie in together that don't focus on action for action's sake. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of Blade Runner's translation to the screen was lost in action for action's sake. Yeah, but then it's like the pacing of it isn't even, like, good. No. I mean... And Decker told backstory isn't good by comparison. I, I, right. I would love to have seen the dynamic between him and his wife, yeah. the, the dynamic between him and society, because really, like, okay, yes, he's an outcast and he's painted as such in the film, but to what degree? I mean, you know, he almost has this... Um, What's Bruce Willis's character in Fifth Element? Oh, yeah. I don't know the guy's name, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. He has that kind of, like, caricature-esque version of sure. what could have been a very uh, Corbin Dallas. Uh, uh, nice pull. Yes. See, right like, right out I, of the ass, actually. When I watch Blade Runner, I think, I think it's Han Solo. Yes. Where they're like, well, let's just, let's see what happens with this. We'll just... And we'll he take was, on Solo. We'll make him. We'll make him an android bounty hunter, and just see how it goes. He was kind of fresh off of that. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it was very early '80s. Yes. <sighs> yeah. I just, for me, the things in the book that are are interesting, especially the the whole animals parts and the character development of. I mean, I don't even know what they call him in the movie, but J.R. Isidore. Who is J? I guess he's J.S. Sebastian in the movie, yeah. kind S of. S.F. or S.F. J.F. Sebastian? J.F. Sebastian. Yeah. J. Yeah. And it's like they're completely different people. And even the idea that Sean Young's character, the niece, and the Pris, who's Daryl Hannah in the movie, are the same person. Right, like they're the yes. same model. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, yeah. why didn't you do that in the movie? That would have been so fucking good. I know. If they would have made her play both characters and then he has like that's the whole thing is he has this empathetic problem where he's like well i kind of love this girl and now i have to kill this different version of her because she's an android but they yeah they just didn't do any of that i love all that stuff about the book 
the androids in the book are more human than the humans. Yes. Because they're still curious. There's also character development in the fucking novel. Yeah, quite yeah, a bit. There, there's not just surface like, oh, these these are Nexus Six models and they're being hunted. That is the breadth of, uh, aside from Pris and Sebastian's interactions at the the apartment building. Yeah, it doesn't do anything for me compared yeah. compared to the dialogue and you know themes seen throughout the novel, because yeah. it's throughout. There's not one or two scenes. There is a developing arc that transpires that really. And that's the value of a novel. And I, I have to say, read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, please. If you're listening to this right now, yeah. pause the podcast. Don't even listen to the rest of this interview. Stop it. Read that. Come back. Listen to what we're talking about. Because what we're saying is 100% the truth. Please read this novel. It's a good book. It, it, I mean, There's some weird shit. That whole, the whole, like, Mercerism thing... Oh, yes. That, that, like, reminded me of Scientology. Doesn't even touch in the movie. Yeah, they don't have any of that. Not at like all, the, which is a crazy component that need, it, it should have been, yeah, it should have been developed. J.R. Friendly and his friendly friends is like... Yes, yeah. Some of it is, like, a little too close to home for kind of, like, what we've developed. Like, some of it's, like, the, I mean, the metaverse thing is, like, pretty close, and I really hope that we don't... If, if you're somebody who owns an Oculus or whatever, don't go in the metaverse. No. Don't buy NFTs. Like, just don't. No, resist, do not resist buy Resist all it. of those things. Well, so Philip K. Dick was prolific in his ability to kind of foresee where we were heading as a society. And yeah. he, he does that a lot in his, in his books. It, it's more than just a mirror. Because, like, anybody can hold a mirror up to society and say, here's how you're fucking up. I, sure. I think I think that Philip K. Dick really brought it to another perception of this is where we're heading. And yeah. a lot of his novels, like A Scanner Darkly, talks about drug use and abuse. Uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep talks about our relationship with technology. Man in the High Castle talks about our relationship with socioeconomic and political ideation. You know, it... it yeah, well, and like Minority Report. This is, a, this is a rare Minority Report. This is a rare dude. Yeah. This is like a pretty rare dude. Yeah, if you look at even, yeah, Minority Report, Total Recall, yeah. I mean, just that whole idea of like the police state and these these things that we see as positive changes in our society to yeah. keep us all safe, that eventually they become things that destroy us, right? And even the people that are supposedly the good guys can get caught up with you know, not ending up on the right side of things because everyone's so focused on, well, let's see if we can take this to the next level and it'll change our society to make us more safe, make things better, make things more inhabitable, all these things. I mean, even in the original Do Androids Dream, um, the whole point was that you immigrated to another country and they gave you an Android. Yeah. Like the Nexus 6 were supposed to, they was like, that was the deal. It's like you move here and we'll give you a robot to take care of like your day-to-day -day functions and then the robots were like, "Yeah, we don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to go back to Earth and fuck shit up." Yeah. And you know, like that's not even touched on at all in the movie, but No, not at all. That's it, it, like basically the storyline that just gets They have the, they have the enslaved perspective which does which definitely is the impetus for like you know the, the nexus six models roy batty and them coming to earth and causing havoc sure. but but you know really it doesn't talk about 
the whole basis for the novel, which is keeping up with the Joneses. Right. That's that's really Deckard's driving force behind the whole desire to have a living animal. Right. Is is the status symbol. So there are a lot of tropes that don't get touched on in the film adaptation, and I even hesitate to call it an adaptation. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like the the things that do make sense in the novel, like the whole like I mean, first of all, that love scene in the movie is like like what the hell? Shoehorn. Uh, yeah, shoehorn. yeah, but also like he like pushes her around and you, and you're like, uh, I'm uncomfortable about this. But in the in the book, there's like the whole thing makes sense. And then, you know, like then she turns on him like after he's like, what that robot mouth do, though, he turned like <laughs> she turns on him and is like, oh, actually, I fuck all the bounty hunters to get him to not kill us. Like, yeah, that's like that's a pretty big piece of the puzzle. And in the movie, they're just like, oh, they're going to fuck now. Yeah. And it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then it's she just, kills it's just a fucking... sheep. It's fucking for the sake of fucking. Yeah, she kills the sheep out of jealousy of him kind of also playing into the factor that she's bringing to the table. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a very... Spoiler alert. She it, kills well, the sheep at the end. You know what? People have been spoiled by an alert that I gave earlier, so... Yeah, go read the book. Listen to the audiobook. It's actually pretty good. Don't watch the movie. Um, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a fist bump from Logan Lockmiller, everybody. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Philip K. Dick, though, is a person, very interesting guy. Uh, I've one of the things that I've cued in on. He, I think this is right, and I don't even remember where I read this in some biography of his, not on Wikipedia, but he had a twin, or he had twin sisters, mm. and one of them died when they were young. That's been like a theme that he wrote into some of his stories was like this whole phantom twin thing. Where it's like kind of this phenomenon where if you're a twin and your twin dies, then like you're incomplete as a person, Mm. which my sister, my next oldest sister, I'm the youngest of six, Margaret, my next oldest sister was also a twin and uh, the other person didn't survive childbirth. So that's kind of an interesting thing to me to like witness that as a person where it's definitely like one of those weird things where if you're born with another person and then that person isn't there anymore, it's like, that's a mind fuck kind of thing. And to like use those kind of ideas within science fiction is kind of mind boggling and very interesting to me. Um, yeah, just the fact that that was part of his life. And, you know, I mean, to, to kind of try to pinpoint where, where this guy came up with some of these ideas, like obviously he did a lot of drugs and he had an interesting life and an interesting childhood. And, you know, I mean, the guy had five ex-wives, which, I mean, that would make me write some crazy well, revisionist history. I, I think that's myself. required That's required from any science yeah. fiction author. Well, he only lived to, to be multiple. 53. And yeah. he had five, not five wives, five ex-wives. He was right. divorced when he died. He did a lot of living for how, I mean, he had a stroke. Yeah. And, and I, I think that kind of, in a weird way, speaks to his dimensional slipping because he he has a lot of personal uh instances where he like dealt with breaching multiple realities whether you believe him or not the the capacity to imagine 
that realm or yeah. potential to span various realms is so fascinating to me. And to hear him speak is another very interesting thing insofar as that, you know, he, he has more to say than your average bear because of experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it, when somebody, and I know that a lot of authors, they obviously draw on experience, but in a sci-fi sense, this dude has literally lived uh, things that people can only dream about. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, he's he's a very fascinating guy. And, it, I mean, you know, people talk about the 27 Club. I don't know if the 53 Club mm-hmm. is a thing for sci-fi writers. I think that has a lot to do with diet and lifestyle. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just, and that was a fact I learned today, too, was that, did you know that his daughter is in the production team's? So he his daughter is the one making the man in the high castle. Oh. And can't remember what the other one is, but I don't think it's minority report, but it's there's something else that's like his and she's she's part of the team that's making these these shows or films or whatever. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, it's a generational thing. I mean, if I were to think of anybody who would be able to take over a, aside from a hyper nerd, you know, to take over a property, it would be somebody who knows the creator on a, on a personal level. Yeah, the Adjustment Bureau. Yeah, so she helped produce The Man in the High Castle, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, and The Adjustment Bureau. Very cool. There you go. That's Isa? Yeah. Isa? Isa? I would say Isa. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Very cool. Well, do you have a favorite character from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I mean, I know that the obvious is Deckard because he's the protagonist, but it, I mean... Yeah, I don't know. At the same time, he's like, he is that kind of like hard tack human that he's not really like easy to root for. Mm. Um, no, no, definitely not. It certainly has his flaws. Yeah, yeah I'm definitely like, a, like, I don't know. I think for me, the way that I like interact with characters especially in novels is like the person that i relate to the most and then if there's a situation where there isn't really like there isn't a person like that that i root for then i maybe swing back the other way so like as far as like who i enjoyed was the other guy um and his name's escaping me right now but he's the other bounty hunter who they he's like he he he's not convinced that he's a human and just sort of his like paranoia around all of that where he's like well i mean i guess you're gonna have to kill me right where he's like i mean i don't know and you don't know and we're not gonna be able to figure this out um i kind of liked when he was part of the story yeah i really didn't like the john isidore part of it um that the whole thing with the mercerism was like really weird to me just like that whole idea even though it's kind of makes sense with what we like are dealing with in our actual reality right now yeah Um, well i i think that you know it's funny how like throughout time novels will speak to what is contemporary yeah and and i i feel like as technology develops that do Android's dream is going to speak more and more to our concept of reality. 
and the the guy you're talking about, Phil Resch, yeah, who's, Phil who's, Resch. who's the other uh, bounty hunter. You know, I, I think that that kind of like, <laughs> am I an android? And mm-hmm. like, what is reality? I, I think that kind of speaks to another aspect of PKD's experiences. How can you be sure of what reality even is? Are we in a base reality? Sure. Can we tap into alternate realities? So it's definitely a theme with PKD, and you see it, I would say, most heavily with stuff like Valis uh, and and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. So, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate you bringing PKD to the table because, you know, outside of doing it with the book report, there's not a lot of people who want to talk about sci-fi novels. yeah. So. Yeah, it was like, like I said, I have friends that were that are really into a lot of science fiction, and you know, I was always sort of peripherally. Uh, I never really got into. There was some stuff I liked, but you know, like the, I knew people that were like really into a lot of like Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick and like all of these things, and like I just sort of found my things that I liked, and he was he was one of those guys that. I always liked reading what he had to write and then just sort of the themes that are introduced in all of it. I've always found very interesting, you know, and just, you know, then they just make bad movies of it. Yeah, that is unfortunately Even the Scanner Darkly thing. Oh, well, I I kind of, I love the half animated. Yeah. I kind of dig it, you know, because I feel like it lends to the surreal nature of the story. But you know, a good movie that is done in that style is Hmm. Waking Life. Oh, never seen Waking Life? No, never seen it. Oh, Waking Life's very interesting. It's just sort of like it's almost like a a compilation of essays, and it's a kind of it's around the idea of whether we're awake or not. Mm. And so it's about like Ethan Hawke is in it, and so it's like there's it goes off in these tangents where it's just people talking about like whether we're actually in a dream or a simulation or whatever, but it's, it's, um, done in that. And I think the, I think the main character might be Wiley Wiggins. Okay. From, from, uh, Days and Confused. Confused, Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's, it's like definitely, definitely worth a watch. It's, I mean, I wouldn't call it science fiction, but it's cool. Waking life is like a very cool thing. Very cool. Give me 30 seconds. I have you to pee so yeah. Oh, thank oh. God. Thank you. Oh, that was fast. Oh, sorry. Oh, God. Oh, no. I'll be right back. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ooh. We did it. I had to relieve my Philip K. Dick real quick. Hey. Hey. Well, Jeremiah, I really appreciate you coming out and talking to me. You know, what I really want to know, though, is what is coming up in your comedy schedule? You know, we got some stuff. There's, uh, I'll be at the casino in Lincoln City this weekend. That'll be a lot of fun with Brad Upton. Love a good casino. Doing three or four shows in Medford the weekend after that. New Year's Eve down in Eureka at a winery. Yeah. Next, uh, obviously, all of a sudden next week we're doing For the Record uh, at Helium. I don't know when this will come out, but the 15th we're doing For the Record at Helium, which is, uh, we they asked me today, so I have <laughs> seven days to produce a good comedy show, so hopefully that works out. 
Um, well, I think I think you can do it. Yeah. If if that mullet tells me anything, hey, you can you, know, you can produce a comedy power. show in seven days. Yeah, it's very powerful. But yeah, all that's at jeremiahcoughlin.com. So I got the website running. Very cool. Just got my merch up there. You can buy my stickers on the website now. Yeah, all the dates are up there. It's all it's all right there. Awesome. Get that merch. Check out those dates. Jeremiah Coughlin on Instagram, jeremiahcoughlin.com. Hey, thank you, buddy, for so much yeah, for hanging out and fun. talking PKD, getting that yeah. dick together. Love it. What that robot mouth do though? <laughs> what it do. <laughs> You know, Jeremiah is more than a pretty face and epic mullet, so make sure to check out jeremiahcoughlin.com for show dates and tickets. <sighs> that sound can only mean one thing. You're dreaming. I don't know, maybe? But what even is dreaming? Let's take a sip of these water cooler facts courtesy of the good folks over at the Cleveland Clinic. Why do people dream? It's a question for the ages. There's a lot that experts don't know about why people dream and where dreams come from. However, the prevailing theory is that dreaming helps you consolidate and analyze memories like skills and habits and likely serves as a rehearsal for various situations and challenges that one faces during the daytime. We also know much, but not all, of what's going on physiologically during dreams. Most dreaming occurs during REM or rapid eye movement sleep, which we cycle through periodically during the night. Sleep studies show our brainwaves are almost as active during REM cycles as they are when we're awake. Experts believe the brainstem generates REM sleep and the forebrain generates dreams. In fact, if the brainstem is injured, patients dream but don't go into REM sleep. And if the forebrain is injured, patients go into REM sleep but don't dream. At the same time, we have far more to learn about what's going on psychologically when we dream. For example, one study suggests that dreams stem more from your imagination, the memories, abstract thoughts, and wishes pumped up from deep within your own brain, than from perception, the vivid sensory experiences you collect in your forebrain. And experts have found that dreaming can accompany psychiatric conditions. We do know that people living with post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD, are more likely to have nightmares. These are manifestations of tension for people living with PTSD because they recur around their traumatic experiences. Of course, people without PTSD also have nightmares, so more research is needed as to the source of these often upsetting dreams. So why are your dreams so strange? This may have to do with neurotransmitters or brain chemicals. During REM sleep, some are more pronounced while others are suppressed. Acetylcholine, which maintains brain activation, is more prominent, as is dopamine, which some researchers link to hallucinations. Dopamine may help give dreams their surreal quality. Meanwhile, REM sleep suppresses the neurotransmitters that usually keep us awake, histamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. Thus, we're less conscious of our environment. Some researchers suspect the thalamus, the gateway for sensory input, closes when we dream. But how long do dreams actually last? Well, we can't answer this easily because we haven't found a good way to study dreams in people. Memories of dreams fade quickly after you wake up, and it's difficult to correlate brain scans with your reports of dreams. The relationship between space and time also changes when you dream. Time may seem to last forever or pass by very quickly. And the length of a dream can vary. They can last for a few seconds or approximately 20 to 30 minutes. And people are more likely to remember the dream if they're awakened during the REM phase. But do we dream every night? Well, most people do dream every night. However, you simply don't remember your dreams unless you're awakened during or just after them. Which can be frustrating because figuring out what a dream means is yet another mystery. 
In the 1950s, Dr. Sigmund Freud introduced dream interpretation, but we've never been able to substantiate his claims. In fact, most experts note that dream interpretation is completely subjective. You could also be one of the few people who in fact do not dream, either because their REM sleep is interrupted by a substance such as alcohol or marijuana, medications like antidepressants, or a mental health condition like depression. On the other hand, you could be a super dreamer, or someone who can dream lucidly. Lucid dreaming is a different level of counting sheep because it involves metacognition, knowing you're dreaming while dreaming. Lucid dreamers therefore can control the outcomes in their dreams. They're actively involved and they also know they're dreaming, which is helpful in a nightmare. The brain state may be similar to that of regular dreamers, except that the part of the brain responsible for metacognition, presumably the prefrontal cortex, is also active. While there are no hard and fast truths about the functions of dreams, some scientists think that they serve as a sort of practice test for the real world. They're a simulation of reality that allows us, within a very safe environment, to train new behaviors and skills to confront threats or to cope with social situations. But most of our inferences about dreams and the role they serve in our lives will be coarse and subjective. These preliminary yet intriguing efforts to peel back the veil of hidden motives are a step toward a deeper understanding of our dreams. Exploring the individual elements of dreaming leads to cascades of new questions, and the answers aren't exactly satisfying at this point. It's not easy to gather information from unconscious subjects. It'll take creativity and a lot of trial and error, but the effort could help us understand a vastly unexplored facet of the human experience. After all, we spend about one-third of our lives asleep. I think it'd be neat to be able to play back a quick reel of that sleep realm in the morning. Alrighty folks, we've got a little stack of sources for today's episode to thank, including Medium.com, ScreenRant.com, PhilipDick.com, DiscoverSciFi.com, and of course Wikipedia.com, because if it's on Wikipedia, it was written by an unauthorized sentient android. Science Factual is delivering a double dicking this week with chapter 4 of the book report with Noah Linsk about a scanner darkly and a deeper dive into Philip K. Dick as a historical figure and the way he integrates life experiences into his works dropping on Thursday, December 22nd on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's just say that episode is a little bit experimental if you're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> Wink, we did drugs. Wrapping up 2022 for Science Factual, I get to sit down with the incredibly funny Joe John Sanchez III. We're going to have aliens for breakfast over at my father's place talking about the Sinbad made-for-TV sci-fi flick, comedy, and more. That episode drops on my birthday, December 26th, on all the podcast platforms, as well as on the following day, Tuesday, December 27th, from 8 to 9 a.m., airing on Shady Pines Radio. Visit us online at ShadyPinesRadio.com or download the free Shady Pines Radio app for either iOS and Android for access to amazing content 24-7 from Portland and beyond. Oh, and definitely join Shady Pines Radio for the Eyeball New Year's Eve celebration. Check it out! into her eyeball. Dream with the dream. Dance with the lunatic. At the Eyeball New Year's Eve Surrealist Dance Party. Electric Streams Production. Saturday, December 31st at Polaris Hall. 8 p.m. 
DJ Rescue and Gregarious launch you into orbit. Sun Adams guides you through the stratosphere. Outrage. Outlandish. Dress to impress your future self. Get your tickets now at PolarisHall.com. $25 in advance. Share a toast and face <laughs> the strange this New Year's Eve at the Eyeball. Before we head on out of here, get your ha-has in with this super funny set from Jeremiah performing at the final round of the Portland's Funniest Person Competition 2022 out of Helium Comedy Club in Portland, Oregon. Enjoy! Helium Comedy Club! How are you? What a time! Let's have a hand for all the staff here real quick, huh? You're drunk. You're drinking? Who's drinking? Huh? I don't know what this is. I don't feel good. I I had too many Red Bulls. I could die up here. Holy shit. I don't know. You know when you go to Safeway and you get the carrot cake and then you eat the whole thing on accident and then you start sweating from eating cake, you know? Yeah, that's how I feel right now. That's four sugar-free Red Bulls. Sugar-free, though. My body's a temple. Sugar-free... Let's be, let's be realistic. You fuck with Red Bulls, sir? You do with the Red Bulls? Yeah, they're so good. I love them. I love them a lot. Maybe too much. Uh, my new thing, though, is cold brew coffee. I hear you back there, white girls. Settle down. Uh, cold, brew, cold brew coffee's serious. Red Bull gives you wings. Cold brew coffee makes you want to take your microwave apart and put it back together. You know what I mean? I have... I have smoked crack before you guys. I'm telling you, Red Bulls, cold brew coffee, meth from Gresham. You know, we've all, we all tried it together. You were there. I saw recently they're, they're putting CBD in the cold brew. Have you seen this? Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't think we should be mixing the uppers and the downers like that. That's, that's how Chris Farley died, okay? That's how cool... Thank you for not getting sad. Ah. You do CBDs, sir? Yeah? You know, he's like, I just do the weed, man. I don't, I don't need anything extra. Uh, I don't do weed, as you can tell by the fact that I call it doing weed. I'm not, I'm not what you call a cool person. I realize I look like Doe the Bounty Hunter. Uh, but if the bounties were chicken wings, yeah, I know. Uh, fine. <laughs> CBD, they do, if you don't know, they took the part of weed that makes your body feel good. They put it by itself. People seem to like that. But I feel like, I feel like weed's the only drug you could do that with, okay? Like, no one's asking for just a, a, can I get a small pill that's just a part of cocaine that makes me clench my jaw for four hours? <laughs> Maybe a brown glass tincture I could dip in my tea every morning that's just a part of mushrooms that makes me shit my pants the next day, huh? How about, how about a five milligram cream I can rub on my body that's just a part of Molly that makes it so my dick gets hard but won't come, right? <laughs> this guy knows what I'm talking about. I did that joke last week in Yakima, Washington. This, I was like, this guy, this dude stood up. He's like, the fuck I do? I was like, what are you so mad about, sir? Your wiener doesn't work? Is that you do drugs? I do, I've been traveling a lot for comedy. I was just in Bend, Oregon. You guys like Bend, Oregon? Yeah. 
What a shithole. Uh, all the gas stations in Bend close at 9 o'clock at night. I was trying to leave Bend. I swear to God, I, I couldn't find gas. I pulled up to a stranger at a red light. I made him roll his window down. I was like, dude, can you help me? And he's like, what? And I was like, can you tell me where an open gas station is? <laughs> he looked at me right in the face and goes, bro, this car's electric. And he drove away. <laughs> Fuck that town. Fuck that town. The Dutch Brothers is open. The gas stations are closed. That's not a world I want to live in. I've been traveling a lot. I feel, feel good. Any, you guys are all local. You guys seasonal affected? Who gets sad when the sun doesn't come out? Everybody? Yeah. Yeah. You guys should fucking move. Uh, my mental health hasn't been great. I, I feel like the murder podcasts aren't helping. Uh, just murder pumped into my brain through earbuds for eight to ten hours a day. I, you don't realize the fucked up shit they say on a murder podcast until like your Bluetooth gets disconnected and it just starts playing in the wild. It's worse than porn. You're just like, oh no, turn that off, turn that off. There's a podcast I really like. It's called DNA ID, and it's like murders that happen in the 80s, and they're solving them because of like familial DNA, 23andMe. But the lady who narrates it is very monotone, and she just says the most fucked up stuff with like no effect on her voice. She's just like, sadly, the sex toy they found in the basement contained no DNA. There's, I'm just at a red light with my volume up, you know? Like the car next to me is like, what the fuck? The six pubic hairs they found on the corpse were very interesting, though. <laughs> As I'm in the McDonald's drive-thru, you know, and they're just like, what is happening over there? I, <laughs> I love that show, because, like, at the end of every episode, she's like, if you're a bad guy and you're out there, we're going to find you. And, like, I, I like that, right? But <laughs> I think about the flip side, which is... You know, like in 1987, you fucking murdered somebody, right? You had a bad day, some kid in an electric car laughed in your face or whatever, right? And you fucking killed that guy, right? And then you've woken up every day for the next 35 years like, I think I'm going to get away with it, right? I think I, I committed the perfect crime. I pulled it off. I did it. And then your shithead nephew that lives in Eugene is just like, you know, I wonder if we're Swedish. You know, Grandma, <laughs> Grandma used to always tell us we were Swedish. <laughs> I'm gonna spit in this tube, mail it off. Boom, fucking Uncle Murderer's busted, right? I don't think that's fair. Put in their time. I feel like the commercials during the murder podcast are getting too on the nose. There's another, I'm plugging too many murder podcasts, but there's a, another one I really like. It's called uh, Park Predators. Yeah, big Park Predators fan. And it's just people that get murdered in national parks. And it's great, it's great. But then the commer like the presenting sponsor is the US Forestry Service. <laughs> like trying to drum up tourism. Like it's their target audience. They're like, hey, go, come walk around outside. You never know what you're gonna find. It's like, no, I, I'm gonna find my murderer. They just told us that. Yeah. I also think it's weird that they're all sponsored by BetterHelp, the phone therapy. <laughs> Yeah, that's too on the nose. It's not even a commercial. It's just a voice that comes on after two hours of 911 calls or the real voice of the Zodiac or whatever fucked up shit you're listening to that day. It's just this voice that comes on. It's like, hey, bud. You having a hard time? Something's standing in the way of you and your happiness? You think you might need to talk to somebody? 
Well, go to the website, betterhelp.com, and use the promo code Duffelbag Full of Baby Heads, and we're gonna get you somebody to talk to. That's stupid. Don't clap for that. I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been trying not to be so fat all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Red Bulls and the cake aren't helping. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's my <laughs> New Year's resolution from 2020 was to not be so fat all the time. I'm waiting for the fifth booster or whatever to go back to the gym. I feel, <laughs> I don't feel safe. I, uh, Yeah, I don't like it. I was I started going to spin class. Uh, that's not for fat people. Uh, the spin, spin class I go to was taught by this like 50-year-old lady who was like mean to everybody during class, which was great. But she'd also say dumb shit. It's like the hardest part of class. She's like, use your legs. It's a bicycle. It's the only way I know how to do this. I don't know what else you want from me. Stop bullying me. I uh, I've. I have a sister who recently had a major weight loss surgery, and uh, she lost over 100 pounds from that. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell her that seven people gave a shit. Uh, I was trying to be supportive, so I was like, sis, let's do something healthy together. And I thought she was going to say something easy, like, we're going to go for walks on Tuesdays or something that I could get behind. And instead, she signed us up to run a 5K. Uh, yeah. And if you've never run a 5K, fucking don't. Uh, it's really early on Saturday, and you don't want to be there. But I was, like, looking around at who's by us, and there was a lady right by us who was, like, 11 months pregnant. That's too many months, sir. Yeah. She was, like, this fucking pregnant, right? And I, I told my sis, like, we don't have to take this seriously or anything, but the pregnant lady's not going to beat me, okay? Got a very small amount of pride left, if you haven't been able to tell from the last eight minutes of your life. And we get to where you can see the finish line, and the pregnant lady, she's like 20 yards in front of us, and I took off running. And I smoked that pregnant lady. Yeah, really embarrassing for her. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, 20 yards in front of the pregnant lady, there was this group of, like, five women that I guess were in their mid-50s, and I think one of them heard me running, which is accurate, right? I'm just standing here, and I'm sweating, all right? And she looks back and sees me, and then they all, like, look back, and then they all start running. Which lets me know they had the same conversation about me that I had about the pregnant lady, right? Yeah. They're like... No matter what happens today, sisters, 300-pound old Navy model isn't going to beat us. And they were right, I didn't. I'm Jeremiah Coughlin. I love you. Hey, folks, this is Michael Phelps, host of Father's Favorites and the Comedy Open Mic at my father's place, conveniently located at 523 Southeast Grand Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Mic sign-ups are Fridays at 8.30 p.m. Come on by for some awesome breakfast food, great drinks, and the best comedians Portland and the Pacific Northwest has to offer. In the meantime, make sure you follow Science Factual on the socials. That's at Science Factual Pod, as well as Shady Pines Radio for amazing content 24 hours a day, 8 days a week. Download the app today wherever you procure your apps. listening to ShadyPinesRadio.com. Here's the lineup for Tuesday. 
Starting at 8 a.m., Science Factual with Reese Hendrick. At 9 a.m., Emotional Weather Report with Jamie Stewart. Beat Salad with Mason O'Brien at 11 a.m. At noon, The Blue Hour with Blue Corbidae. Northwest Comedy Hour with Emily June at 1 p.m. At 2 p.m., The Prague Hour with Reagan Lindy. Your Own Private PDX with DJ Squiffy at 3 p.m. At 4 p.m., Cosmic Taco Beach Shack with Big Papa Warrior. No Dancing Please with L. Ron Hubbard at 5 p.m. At 6 p.m., Anything New with Shorty L. Toasty Tunes with Alex Toast at 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., Radio Seance with Your Psychic Friends. At 9 p.m., Fresh Unoriginal with DJ Wineglass. Turntable Talk with Chili and Bass at 10 p.m. And at 11 p.m., Taking Drugs to Play Music to Take Drugs to with Shampoo Douglas. No matter the day or time, you've picked the right time to listen in. Thanks for listening, and tell others. Shady Pines Radio.